Back to the book of Isaiah. We return this morning where we'll be picking up at chapter 23. And there we'll be reading the entire chapter, Isaiah 23. I know that it may come as something of a relief uh, to you to know that with this chapter we come to the end of a series of oracles that Isaiah has been proclaiming against Judah, uh, uh, rather in Judah, against the nations, including against uh, Judah herself. We're also, incidentally, coming to the end of what is considered by Bible scholars to be the second major portion of Isaiah's uh, prophecy. As we look back over these oracles and this section of Isaiah, I think that you will agree that the, the main theme, or certainly one of the central motifs of this section of Isaiah, which has been repeated over and over again in different ways, must certainly be this. Don't trust in nations. Don't trust in men. Don't make alliances and make princes your confidence. They will either be destroyed in their way by the Lord or will uh, in the end bow the knee to God anyway. So why not just cut to the chase And trust in God, to whom all of the nations are but a drop in the bucket. Along the way, of course, we've learned other lessons too, and this morning will be no exception. Tyre, the great Phoenician port city on the Mediterranean Sea, some 100 miles northwest of Judah, is now in Isaiah's sights. But let us remember that as Isaiah delivers this oracle... He's standing in Judea, on Judean soil, and he's proclaiming this to Judah. And the lesson really is primarily for her, for God's people, by extension for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these words uttered now, what, over 2,000 years ago, almost three, uh, to God's people are just as true and just as important for us today. In fact, you've preserved them down to this very day, down to this very moment, and this very place that your voice should be heard as clearly in this sanctuary today as it was when Isaiah proclaimed these words the very first time. Send your spirit, we pray, to do that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 23, the oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast, the merchants of Sidon who Cross the sea have filled you, and on many waters your revenue was the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither labored nor given birth, I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. 
when the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish, wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, the the merchant were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint anymore. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will no more exalt O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon, arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people that was not. Assyria destined it for wild beasts. They erected their siege towers. They stripped her palaces bare. They made her a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. And that day Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years like the day of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, The Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. Most of you will remember the day that commercial jets were flown into the Twin Towers in New York and into the Pentagon and into the ground. And maybe even where you were, in the car or in the living room or in the office, wherever it was when, the first, when first the news came to you. You'll remember how your stomach turned when you realized the gravity and the horror of that attack. If you, if you look back... And I did that this week to a collage of news clips from that morning. You can almost reconstruct how the news spread of that attack through the entire world by national television and international television and the BBC and and the radio and the shortwave from America to Europe to the Middle East, Asia. Now imagine yourself being one of those thousands, even millions of Americans who live far away from their homeland, who did that day, and how from distant nations, from different parts of the world, they received that news. At first, I imagine it was a, 
It was unbelievable, surreal to them. And then hit them like a blow to the solar plexus. First, I imagine it was almost a, a, a sensation of, of, of wonder and, and loss and, and fear. Imagine sitting at the table in the cafe in London or in Amsterdam and glancing over the other person's shoulder and seeing the news flash on the television on the wall, flashing the coverage of New York's towers burning and then collapsing in on themselves. Well, that's, that's the sort of picture Isaiah paints here in the first seven verses of Tyre's downfall as it reverberated, the news of it, uh, about the Mediterranean world. In verse 1, you have homebound sailors receiving the stunning news in Cyprus. And then stricken silence is the response in Sidon at the news in verse 2. She's so quiet that she can hear the sea speak, lamenting over the lost merchantmen, groaning in verse 4, I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. The, res- the report spreads to, to Egypt in verse 5, and anguish overcomes everyone. And then the news to Tarshish, one of the many far-flung Phoenician colonies where it is met, this news is met with wailing and tears. Tyre has fallen. Can it really be? How can it? They ask one another in disbelief, not Tyre. The mighty city, surely not Tyre. Tyre, you see, was one of those places that seemed impregnable, that uh, seemed invincible. She was considered merchant to the world. Wealth flowed from and to Tyre. And that place had become the world's supplier of, of lumber, of timber from the forest of Lebanon. She shipped loads of it to uh, timber-hungry Egypt. And then in the process, Tyre became master of the seas, moving freight by ships, give grain from Egypt, from Shihor there in verse 3 and so on. Tyre is a well-known place in the Bible and in Bible times. Even Israel, you remember, was supplied with cedar and, and cypress and gold without limit for building the, the very temple of God. From the days of David and Solomon, there was a vital relationship between Israel to the south and Tyre to the north on the Mediterranean coast. And because of Tyre's superabundant wealth, even their merchants were considered princes, according to verse 8. Her traders were the honored of the earth. That's the place that Tyre held in the eyes of the world, in the ancient Near East, and her reputation, strong, well-defended, wealthy beyond reckoning. No wonder then that when she fell, as Isaiah here prophesies, she will. The collapse was heard round the world. Still into modern times, Tyre's 
fall from so great a height is proverbial. Rudyard Kipling, after World War I, pled with Britain not to forget the awful carnage with these words. Far called our navies melt away, on dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Why did she fall? What was Tyre's fault? What was the cause of the judgment that fell upon her? Some say it was her wealth. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. And Tyre knew that philosophy too, they say, and for that reason she was laid waste. The Bible never says that wealth is inherently sinful, nor the holding of wealth a sin. Some of God's choicest servants in Scripture have been very wealthy people indeed, and in history too. Rather, the sin was much more fundamental, much deeper than dollars. There was a heart issue, as you might well have guessed, having become now familiar and accustomed to witnessing God's gaze penetrating far beyond the externals and right to the deepest thoughts and motives that he weighs on his scales. Tyre's problem was not pecuniary. Tyre's problem was pride. And that hardly surprises us since Isaiah has made the same point several times in his prophecies about other nations too and about mankind in general. We've grown accustomed now to hearing Isaiah say things like this, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. And other nations, too, were guilty of the same sin. We've heard Isaiah say it about Babylon. The splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And again about Moab, he writes and proclaims, We have heard the pride of Moab. How proud is he of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. And that theme is hardly contained to Isaiah or even just to the, to the prophets. From cover to, to cover, the scripture teaches that pride lies right at the base of sin. Sin's very entrance into the world was through the portal of pride. Remember? You shall be like God. That was Satan's appeal, and pride it was that closed the deal. And to this day, pride lays the foundation for every known sin. The problem is universal. It's not limited to Tyre or Babylon or Moab. Every man save one has been subject to it, and every man 
to the man has been tempted by it. So the message is not just for Tyre. In fact, it may not even be primarily for Tyre. It was for Judah, and by extension, it is for us, God's chosen people who continue to wrestle with the temptation and with this sin. Three points this morning. The first, a question, what is pride? What is this condition, this sin of which Isaiah speaks? Almost basically, pride is this. It is the idolatry of self. It's the idolatry of self. In our evening series, and the uh, evening services, we're making our way now through the Ten Commandments as part of the series in Exodus. And the very first commandment says this, You shall have no other gods besides me. Well, pride breaks that first commandment by putting the God of me, of self, besides, or rather, really, in the place of God. It is that religion of self that puts my desires, my wants, my recognition, my glory, me, before God. Which is why other sins can be traced back to the sin of pride. Everything from hatred to greed, stealing, lust, adultery, fornication, finally comes down to this, me. Putting me before God. That's pride. That's the love of self. Which is why Alexander White could say that self is simply another word for sin. For Tyre, it took the form of exalting in herself, making her wealth and her accomplishments, her confidence and her boast, rather than bowing before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose temple she'd even supplied. Remember, in the days of David and Solomon with lumber and gold, she worshipped herself. And her worship services took the form of exchanges in the market where she traded in merchandise and clothing and and food and accumulated wealth in the process for herself. It reminds one of those who worship at Wall Street today and the devastation that's visited upon those who worship themselves and their financial prowess and how devastating it is when the market crashes as the market crashed in Tyre. But don't my brothers and sisters get to pointing the finger too fast. There is enough pride right here in this very room, in every one of your hearts, in mine, to fill a thousand temples, grand and glorious, to self. The most mature Christians here are the ones who know it best and who lament it the most fiercely and grievously in themselves. They feel acutely the grip that it still has. And every one of us, down to the most subtle motives of our souls, even as we speak and pray and 
and sing and confess the very grace of God, even in this sanctuary, in this place, this moment, today. What we might call religious pride. William Cooper, writer of some of our most exquisite hymns, confessed that when I would speak what thou hast done to save me from my sin, I cannot make thy mercies known, but self-applause creeps in. C.S. Lewis teaches us to apply this test to ourselves. He writes in his classic Mere Christianity that whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted upon not by God, but by Satan. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. Difficult, you say? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Any Christian who would put down pride in his life or hers and put on the opposite obedience, humility, will have to be engaged fully in serious, constant, mortal war. Pride is not always an obvious thing, by the way, even to ourselves. It reminds me of the, of the Bermuda grass that just started in a couple of spots here and there in our yard now six years ago. And now dominates virtually our entire yard. Pull it out, cut it out, poison it, burn it. It comes back in a different place again and again and again. Kill it in one place and it springs somewhere else because it sets tenacious roots way down in the ground beneath. One day, pride springs up and takes the form of offense at someone else's comment or even look. Another, it is jealousy of what someone else has been given that has not been given to you. Some recognition, maybe some, some praise. Another day it is indulging a passion that God's law says should only be enjoyed under other circumstances. And another it's becoming puffed up because of a talent that you have. And another does not. In most days it appears in all of these and more ways between the times that you rise in the morning and Put your head on the pillow at night. Your fight, Christians, with this sin must be constant. You must show pride no quarter in your life, in your heart, until glory. That war will continue. So you'll need all the help you can get. Well, here's something to aid you in the fight, something to remember anyway. Having defined pride, remember, second, the consequences of, of pride. Remember that Isaiah is writing for the benefit of God's people now when he pro- prophesies the downfall of Tyre up there to the north. The lessons were for them. 
as the very thought of Tyre's downfall made their hearts sink within them, they were to grasp with the eyes of their souls the great invisible hand that was at work behind the calamity and accomplishing this entire. This is why Isaiah pauses purposefully to stop in verse 8 and ask them now to think, who has purposed this? And then answers his own question in verse 9, the Lord of hosts has purposed this. The Lord has done this. Why? He explains, to defile the pompous pride of all glory. Let it be perfectly clear now in your minds, Christians, crystal clear, God hates pride. He hates pride with a divine passion, regardless of where he finds it. In the hearts of the most wicked enemies of dictators or the most godly servant of his, he hates it. Because it gives glory to men when all glory belongs to him. He does not share his glory with others, Isaiah will say later on. Where he finds it, God deals with it. In Tyre's case, it was by sending another nation to defeat and devastate it. God draws to their minds the ruins of Babylon too, under Assyria in verse 13, to show that everywhere he finds pride, in the kingdoms of the earth, in the kingdoms that rule the high seas, Babylon, Tyre, everywhere, he puts it down with divine violence. So must you, Christian, you must drive this sin away. You must pull no punches when it comes to quelling this sin in your hearts, remembering that if you don't, God will He doesn't tolerate this in his children any more than he did in Tyre or in Tarshish. He will discipline it from you because because he loves you. And he loves you too much to let you be subject to it. He loves you too much to leave you untouched in your pride. Which brings me to the last point, and that is this. God also grants the remedy for this sin of pride. I can hardly think of anything more discouraging than the fact that pride is something against which I am going to have to fight for the rest of my life. But I do find this great encouragement in the fact that God himself is the one. It is his power and his grace that ultimately overcomes it and delivers me from it. And a curious twist and wonderful. Not unlike what we witnessed back there in uh, the case of the Egyptians and the Assyrians back in chapter 19, you remember? When once God has judged Tyre, he's not yet through with Tyre. His work is not finished in Tyre. Verse 18, her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. Her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing 
for those who dwell before the Lord. In other words, Tyre will be converted. Tyre will bow the knee to Christ. Even Tyre. Proud, arrogant, boastful lovers of themselves, even they will turn to the Lord and be saved. Exactly how and when this took place is not so important, although we certainly do have examples of Phoenicians in the Bible who turned to God. The point, of course, is this. Sin is great, but God is greater still. His grace is more powerful than your sin. And if God can save proud tire, if out of the ashes of their pride He can pull a trophy for Himself, then He can do the same with me and with you. And He does. I mentioned C.S. Lewis a moment ago. I hope that you will take some time to look back at that marvelous chapter in his book, Mere Christianity, this week sometime, and that if you don't own a copy, that you will waste no time in getting one of your own. That one chapter on pride makes the entire book worth the price. But hear this encouraging section of that chapter now. How happy it is when a Christian makes progress in this matter of killing pride and putting on the new obedience of humility before the Lord. A lengthy quote, but well worth it. We must not think pride is something God forbids because he's offended at it, or that humility is something he demands as due to his own dignity, as if God himself was proud. He's not in the least worried about his dignity. The point is, he wants you to know him. Wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will, in fact, be humble delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity which made you restless and unhappy all your life. He is trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible. Trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we've all got ourselves up and are strutting about like the little idiots that we are. I wish I had got a bit further with humility myself, says Lewis. If I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort of taking off the fancy dress. Getting rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy. And all its posing and posturing. To get even near it, even for a moment, is is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. 
Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He'll not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least, nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited indeed. End quote. The war against pride is hard. Of course it is. But when you have won, Christians, when you have won one battle with it, and then another, when you have dealt a couple of real blows to your pride toward putting it to death, the glory you give to God and the blessing he bestows on them who do this will be more than enough reward for you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Amen.